One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Apollo 10 mission commander Thomas Stafford checked the fuel cell levels. Everything looked good. The moon's pale gray surface filled his view. Stafford imagined himself down there, kicking up lunar dust with every bouncing step. But that wasn't his job. Apollo 10 was a dress rehearsal for the real moon landing. Stafford and his fellow astronauts, Gene Cernan and John Young, only had to orbit the moon. If the mission went well, the next Apollo crew would get to set foot on it. As their lunar module passed the dark side of the moon, the crew lost all contact with mission control. Stafford's earpiece filled with vacant static. He took it off so he could focus on work. Stafford noticed that Cernan and Young seemed to be focused on something coming through their earpieces. He asked if they were all right. Cernan looked up, startled. He asked Stafford if he could hear the music. Stafford looked over at the cassette player they had brought with them. It was off. The music was coming from their earpieces. Stafford looked out the window. Earth was completely blocked by the moon. There was no way they could be receiving any transmissions. His face went white. If the music wasn't coming from the tape deck, and if it wasn't coming from Earth, that could only mean one thing. It was coming from somewhere in outer space. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Welcome to our first of two episodes on lunar aliens. During the famous summer of 69, astronauts on the Apollo 10 lunar mission heard what they said sounded like space music as they crossed the far side of the moon. 
This week, we'll be exploring the stories of the Apollo 10 astronauts who heard this strange music, as well as the story of Apollo 11 astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, who may have encountered a UFO during their famous walk on the moon. Next week, we'll explore the possibility of whether or not aliens could be on the moon. Was the purpose of the Apollo missions really to beat the Soviet Union to the moon? Or was there another reason President Kennedy pushed the space program as hard as he did? This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Please let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. On May 25, 1961, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech to Congress that changed the course of American and human history. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. At the time of Kennedy's historic announcement, the USA was lagging behind in the space race with the Soviet Union, which served as an extension of the growing Cold War. On April 12, 1961, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin had become the first person in space when he made a full orbit around Earth during a 108-minute flight. It was a huge victory for the Soviet Union and a massive embarrassment for the United States. The USA sent astronaut Alan Shepard to space less than one month after Gagarin's flight on May 5th. However, he only achieved suborbital spaceflight, and that flight lasted only 15 minutes. The Soviets had the advantage in both the space race and the actual Cold War at that time. In April of 1961, JFK had been thoroughly embarrassed in the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in which Fidel Castro's communist government soundly defeated invading U.S.-backed Cuban revolutionaries. JFK's presidency was barely a few months old, and he was already desperate for a political victory. So before America had even sent anyone into orbit, he promised that NASA would have a man walk on the moon. After Kennedy's mandate, billions of dollars were poured into NASA's Apollo missions, which were working around the clock to put a man on the moon. But just as NASA was beginning to build momentum, tragedy struck. On November 22, 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. As the nation grieved, the fate of the Apollo missions hung in limbo. Ultimately, Kennedy's successor, President Lyndon B. Johnson, decided to continue the work that JFK had begun. 
he was determined to watch an American astronaut walk on the moon before the decade was done. By the spring of 1969, NASA had the technology they needed, but safety was of the utmost importance. Before the full lunar mission could be executed, there had to be a dress rehearsal. On May 18, 1969, the crew of Apollo 10 blasted off from Florida's Cape Kennedy with the goal of conducting all aspects of a manned lunar landing, minus the actual landing itself. Apollo 8's mission was to orbit the moon. Apollo 10's mission was to test all the equipment that would be used for the actual landing. The first part of the mission went off without a hitch. The three-man team of Thomas Stafford, John Young, and Gene Cernan worked together like a well-oiled machine. The operators at Mission Control down in Houston were delighted. But there was still an element of danger. There would be a period during the module's orbit where the crew would be unable to communicate with Mission Control for about an hour. Once the craft passed behind the dark side of the moon, the astronauts jumped into their various tasks. But Gene Cernan couldn't focus on the job at hand. There was something strange coming through his earpiece. And it music even sounds outer spacey, doesn't it? You hear that? That whistling sound? It sounds like, uh, you know, outer space type music. The first thing the astronauts wondered was if what they were hearing could be some malfunction with their headsets. But the odds of the same thing being wrong with all three of their headsets were minimal. The chances of it being some sort of interference were similarly low. Stafford, Cernan, and Young knew the range of noises that should be coming through their headsets. They had trained for thousands of hours for this mission. They knew exactly what to expect, but these music-like sounds were not part of the plan. Certainly the Apollo 8 astronauts hadn't heard it. If they had, the Apollo 10 crew would have been briefed on it. Whatever they were hearing, was coming from some unknown source. The music's origin was of grave concern to mission commander Thomas Stafford. He knew it couldn't be coming from Earth. Radio transmissions couldn't go through the moon. He wondered if it could possibly be coming from deep space. Perhaps a distant civilization was sending a transmission to the Apollo 10 crew. However, that was extremely unlikely. Although the music could be on some sort of loop, the astronauts had only started receiving the transmission once they passed over the far side of the moon. If an interstellar civilization had sent the music, it would have had to target the specific area the astronauts were passing through at that moment. If the music wasn't coming from the Earth or from somewhere in deep space, that left only one logical option. The music was being transmitted from the moon. The three Apollo astronauts shuddered as they looked down at the moon's dark, pock-marked surface. They wondered if there could really be something down there. And if there was, what was it? And what did it want? They didn't have the time to investigate any further. The astronauts would come back into contact with Earth at any moment, and they had to decide what to tell Mission Control. In the end, they decided not to say anything about the music they had heard. The stakes were too high, and if it turned out the astronauts were making a big fuss out of nothing, their participation in future missions could be at risk. Other astronauts had been grounded for less. 
Earlier in 1969, Apollo 9 astronaut Rusty Schweikart was never selected for another mission because he reported that he got motion sickness during his flight. If Mission Control thought the Apollo 10 astronauts were imagining things, they might never get to participate in another spaceflight. In the end, the astronauts figured that if there was really something coming from the moon, NASA would tell them. Once the mission was over, they would turn over all their audio for transcription and analysis. If the music they had heard was something to be worried about, they figured the army of NASA scientists analyzing it would be better equipped to know. The astronauts tried to push the incident out of their minds. They still had a job to do. If this mission didn't go well, then the whole moon landing could be called off. The most important part of the mission was coming up, simulating the moon landing. Although they wouldn't actually land on the moon, Stafford and Cernan were going to fly the lunar module to 50,000 feet above the proposed landing site and test the landing radar. Everything was going according to plan. The lunar module operated perfectly, and the radar readings indicated that the landing site was safe. It was time to return to the command module and head home. But when Stafford fired the ascent engine, something went horribly wrong. Instead of ascending smoothly through space, the lunar module began to spin wildly out of control. If the module spun too many times, it would be impossible to get back on course. There was no time to panic. Stafford and Cernan had to act fast or they would crash on the moon. With only a few revolutions to spare, they were able to get the lunar module under control. Stafford and Cernan looked at each other and breathed a sigh of relief. After that close call, the rest of the mission went off without a hitch. Stafford, Cernan, and Young returned to Earth as heroes. Through the return celebration and the debriefing, the astronauts maintained their decision to keep quiet about what they'd heard. As the days crept by, nobody said anything about the music. However, Stafford and Cernan did get an answer for what had caused the lunar module to spin out of control. Apparently, there was an error in the flight plan checklist. The astronauts hadn't done anything wrong. Stafford, Cernan, and Young never got an answer about the strange music. Once the mission data was analyzed, it was marked as classified and stored in the NASA archives. Officially, the reason for classifying the data was that it contained valuable technical information that the Soviet Union could use for its own benefit. But NASA may have had a darker reason for keeping the Apollo 10 mission data under lock and key. Maybe Stafford, Cernan, and Young had reason to be worried about the music they had heard. Because, as the next Apollo mission would soon find out, there was more to the moon than met the eye. Coming up, the Apollo 11 astronauts encounter things they can't explain. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now, back to the story. After Apollo 10's triumphant success in the early summer, the actual moon landing was scheduled to take place with the Apollo 11 mission on July 16, 1969. Commander Neil Armstrong would land on the moon with Lunar Module pilot Edward Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins would pilot the command module. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. About four hours and 40 minutes into the flight, the command and lunar modules separated from the Saturn V rocket that had launched them out of Earth's atmosphere. The 953,054-mile journey to the moon and back was officially on. On July 18th, the third day of the journey, Buzz Aldrin was staring into the depths of space when a glint of light drew his attention to an object that appeared to be alongside the Apollo 11 capsule. With almost no reference points to draw from, it was incredibly difficult to gauge how far the object was from them, although it appeared to be keeping pace with the American vessel. When Aldrin pointed the object out to the other two astronauts, Armstrong suggested it might be the shell of the Saturn V rocket they had separated from two days earlier. Since there was no friction in the vacuum of space, the rocket would have still maintained significant momentum and might still be within visual range. Armstrong radioed mission control for the rocket's whereabouts. Four seconds later, they responded and asked the astronauts to stand by. It took Mission Control another three minutes to come up with a response. According to Mission Control, the Saturn V rocket was 6,000 miles away. There was no way it would be visible to the Apollo 11 astronauts. In the end, the astronauts figured that the object was probably one of four panels that had separated from the lunar module during the Saturn V rocket separation. However, unlike the rocket, NASA wasn't tracking these panels and couldn't confirm the astronauts' suspicions. Although it's very likely that the object was one of these panels, the inability to identify it makes it the true definition of an unidentified flying object. But maybe the astronauts were mistaken. When Michael Collins observed it more closely through the ship's telescope, he saw what appeared to be an ellipsis on the object, or a series of three dots. Most likely, they were a reflection of light from the sun. But another possibility is that they were the portholes of an extraterrestrial vessel. Ultimately, Aldrin claimed that the astronauts didn't pursue the matter further because they were worried about the reaction on Earth. If mission control sensed that even the slightest thing was off, they could have made the astronauts turn around and return home. But the mission went ahead as planned. On July 20th, 1969, the lunar module landed on a wide, flat area of the moon called the Sea of Tranquility. A few hours later, 
Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon. That's one small step for man, Armstrong's heart soared as he bounced along the lunar surface. With hundreds of millions of people listening to his every word, he had to remind himself to stay professional as he and Aldrin conducted various tests. What follows is one theorized account of what happened, according to UFO conspiracy theorists, as published in a number of tabloids over the last several decades. As the two astronauts gained some distance from the lunar module, Armstrong noticed a flash of light on the edge of a far-off crater. At first, he thought it was some sort of reflection of light from the sun, like with the strange object the astronauts had observed as they flew towards the moon. But this light was different. It was much closer, and it was moving towards them. Armstrong's wonder soon turned to fear as a second light joined the one currently approaching them. Despite the low gravity, he felt like his boots were full of cement as he stood rooted to the ground. As the lights passed overhead, Armstrong was able to get a good look at the objects emitting the lights. If his face wasn't behind a visor, he would have rubbed his eyes in shock. He was looking at flying saucers. Buzz Aldrin had noticed the lights as well. Like Armstrong, he was overcome with a mix of fear and awe at what he was seeing. He tried to point his camera at the flying saucers, but his hands were shaking so badly that he wasn't sure he had captured them on film. The two men stood side by side and watched while the UFOs hovered over the lunar module. A flash of panic overcame Armstrong as he worried that the alien spacecraft would destroy the crew's only way home. Luckily, after a brief moment, the UFOs returned the way they came and seemingly disappeared over the lunar horizon. Once the UFOs had disappeared, both astronauts returned to their senses. Armstrong quickly radioed mission control to tell them what he and Aldrin had seen. After hearing about what Armstrong and Aldrin thought they had seen, the NASA officials back in Houston quickly decided the public couldn't know about it. If it came out that there were aliens on the moon, it could cause widespread panic. The moment Mission Control had realized something was off, they had cut off the audio and video transmissions coming from Aldrin's camera and the astronauts' radios the entire incident had lasted barely more than two minutes. Officially, NASA's story was that Aldrin's camera had momentarily overheated, causing the break in the transmission. But they didn't realize that there were others listening in on Armstrong's radio transmissions. On September 29, 1969, the headline of a publication called The National Bulletin Magazine read, Phony transmission failure hides Apollo 11 discovery. Moon is a UFO base. According to the article's author, Sam Pepper, the exchange between the Apollo 11 astronauts and mission control about the UFOs they saw was picked up by hundreds of ham radio operators who had discovered NASA's frequency. These radio operators overheard the real reason for the communications break. 
The UFO community quickly seized on the so-called pepper transcript of the covered-up transmissions and spread it to publications far and wide. The story eventually became so widespread that NASA had to offer an official denial. In a January 1970 letter to Congress, a NASA legislative administrator wrote, quote, the incidents did not take place. Conversations between the Apollo 11 crew and mission control were released live during the entire Apollo 11 mission. NASA was acknowledging the break in the live feed and stuck by their assertion that it was a technical error. The NASA legislative administrator continued, quote, there were between 1,000 and 1,500 representatives of the news media and TV present at the Houston News Center listening and observing, and not one has suggested that NASA withheld any news or conversations of this nature. Naturally, many members of the UFO community didn't take much stock in NASA's statement. But people familiar with the official vocabulary used in NASA's missions have been able to demonstrate that the Pepper transcript is most likely false. The biggest giveaway is that, in the transcript, the astronauts use the designation Mission Control rather than the standard use of Houston when radioing back to Earth. Even in a moment of panic, it's highly unlikely that Armstrong or Aldrin would make this mistake. The phrase, Houston, we have a problem, for instance, immediately comes to mind. Additionally, the transcript has technical sounding jargon such as field distortion, orbit scanned, 625 to the fifth, and auto relays that have never appeared in actual NASA mission transcripts. While it could be possible that the astronauts were using unusual language to describe such a fantastic sight, chances are they'd use reliable technical language so mission control could grasp the situation. Another deviation from standard language in the Pepper transcript is that mission control used the phrase repeat, repeat when they wanted the astronauts to say something again. The official language that both astronauts and mission control used when something needed to be repeated was say again. Taking these discrepancies into consideration, it's highly unlikely that the Pepper transcript was legitimate. Casting further doubt onto the transcript's authenticity is the fact that the supposed hundreds of radio operators who heard the allegedly scrubbed transmission haven't corroborated the story. Additionally, Although Pepper claimed there was a tape of the transmission, no such recording seems to exist, or at least be readily available. However, while the Pepper transcript is, in all likelihood, a fabrication, there are still elements of the official Apollo 11 transcript that raise questions about what the astronauts might have seen on the lunar surface. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin probably didn't see flying saucers during their moonwalk. But, hundreds of miles above them, command module pilot Michael Collins might have. As he waited for his fellow astronauts to complete their part of the mission, he saw something that raised the possibility that Armstrong and Aldrin were not alone on the lunar surface. Coming up, we continue our investigation into the possibility of alien technology on the moon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And now back to the story. The release of the so-called Pepper transcript on September 29th, 1969, sent the UFO world into a frenzy at the possibility that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had an extremely close encounter with some UFOs. But while the transcript of Armstrong and Aldrin's conversation with NASA about the UFOs was a fake, the mission's official transcript contains a strange moment with Command Module pilot Michael Collins. While his fellow astronauts walked on the moon, Collins was tasked with locating the exact coordinates of where they had landed. About an hour and a half into the moonwalk, as Collins passed over the approximate area of the landing site, he wasn't able to spot the lunar module, or LEM. However, he did see something else. His conversation with Mission Control went as follows. From Collins, No marks on the LEM that time. I did see a suspiciously small white object whose coordinates are... From Mission Control, Go ahead with the coordinates of the small white object. Collins, Easy 0.3, right on the southwest end of a crater. I think they would know if they were in such a location. It looks like their limb would be pitched up quite a degree. It's on the southwest wall of a smallish crater. Based off of Collins' description, he knew the object he was reporting wasn't the lunar module. It was located on the edge of a crater, and if that was where Armstrong and Aldrin had landed, they would have commented that they were on a slanted surface. Although he was certain the object wasn't the lunar module, Collins clearly thought it was important enough for him to describe to mission control. NASA's explanation for the object was unsurprisingly pedestrian. Apparently, it was nothing more than a large rock. But members of the UFO community suspected it was something more. In a 1974 UFO newsletter from New Zealand, ufologist Mike Harris posited that the object Collins observed was a group of UFOs and it didn't seem like his theory was pure speculation. Though he was vague about how he came across it, Harris claimed he had reviewed film from the Apollo 11 mission and had seen the UFOs in action. According to Harris, as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin took off from the moon to return to the command module, 
A fixed camera on the bottom of the lunar module caught something unusual. A streak of light that passed diagonally through the frame. Apparently, whoever was piloting the UFO wanted to keep a close eye on the American astronauts. Once Armstrong and Aldrin achieved lunar orbit, the UFOs appeared again. As the astronauts waited to reconnect with the command module, Buzz Aldrin spotted an extremely bright object moving through the starry sky. Aldrin's training kicked in, and he grabbed a camera to film what he was seeing. The best way to explain the bright object's shape was to describe it almost like a snowman that had been laid on its side. But as he observed it more closely, Aldrin realized it wasn't one object, but two. They were UFOs flying together in extremely close formation, one larger than the other. When the astronauts returned to Earth, they didn't say anything about the encounter. But in 1974, a Japanese UFO society called the Cosmic Brotherhood Association, or CBA, said they had proof that the Apollo 11 astronauts had seen UFOs. Unlike the Pepper transcript, the evidence the CBA provided came straight from the official Apollo 11 records, which were available at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. The CBA had gone to view the mission records and had taken a photo still from one of the mission's film strips that clearly showed two bright globes of light hovering over the curve of the moon. This photo became the rallying point for the various UFO societies and researchers who believed that there was more to the Apollo missions than the American government was letting on. As UFO researchers dug deeper into NASA's records, many came to believe that subsequent Apollo missions also had encounters with UFOs. Apollo 13, which launched on April 11, 1970, is most famous for the explosion in one of the command module's oxygen tanks that forced its astronauts to make a harrowing return to Earth. Although NASA concluded that overheated wires essentially caused the explosion, that's not what French UFO researcher Maurice Chatelain believed. According to Chatelain's 1978 book, Our Ancestors Came From Outer Space, quote, there was some talk that the Apollo 13 mission carried a nuclear device aboard that could be set off to make measurements of the infrastructure of the moon using the radiation released in the blast. The unexplained explosion of an oxygen tank in the service module of Apollo 13 on its flight to the moon, according to rumors, was caused deliberately by a UFO that was following the capsule to prevent the nuclear detonation. With demonstrably false stories like this beginning to gain momentum, aerospace journalist and former NASA official James Oberg took it upon himself to examine the various claims that had been made about UFO encounters during the Apollo missions, particularly during Apollo 11. Oberg published his findings in his 1982 book called UFOs and Outer Space Mysteries, in which he detailed the steps he took to examine the various UFO proof that had been circulating in the past decade or so. One of the main issues Oberg focused on was the story of what Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had supposedly observed as they took off from the moon. Up to that point, UFO researchers were holding up the photo the Cosmic Brotherhood Association had provided of the two bright lights above the moon as proof that the Apollo 11 astronauts had seen something out of the ordinary. 
Oberg carefully examined the film from which the CBA claimed to have taken their stills. He didn't find anything remotely resembling the photos the UFO organization had published. According to Oberg, quote, the actual film shows a window full of dazzling, dancing, dizzying reflections and glares. Viewing the film in motion, there can be no question of the lights being solid objects outside of the spaceship. There is no way I could imagine that a viewer could honestly believe that UFOs were being shown. Furthermore, Oberg was able to explain how the CBA had produced the photos. Quote, Examination of a few stills from that film strip shows what happened to the original appearance of the UFOs. The Japanese UFO group touched up the photos, enhancing the contrast of the lights and cropping out the extraneous reflections. Further, the films were airbrushed to downplay any additional reflections which might remain aside from the two globes of light. They became the supposed UFOs which, needless to say, the crew didn't see. The final nail in the CBA's coffin was that the film wasn't even taken as the lunar module left the moon. It was recorded the day before while the astronauts were still making their approach. The entire story was a lie. But Oberg's efforts did little to stop people from speculating that there was some sort of extraterrestrial presence on the moon. To many UFO researchers, since Oberg had worked for NASA in the past, he couldn't be trusted. If anything, his debunking of the Apollo 11 UFO theories only made some people even more convinced they were true and that there was an alien presence on the moon. In 1998, almost 30 years after the Apollo 11 mission, a psychologist named Dr. Richard Boylan came forward with a shocking revelation. While the Apollo 10 orbited around the moon, they encountered much more than strange music. They also filmed an alien beacon that NASA called the Monolith. Boylan, whose clients were primarily people with alien abduction experiences, said he learned about the Monolith from an anonymous source in the National Security Agency, who he referred to as Jesse. According to this source, the monolith was a sort of communication beacon that provided a map to the alien civilization that had placed it on the moon. Jesse also told Boylan that the monolith had interfered with Apollo 10 sensors. It was this interference, and not a flight plan error, that caused the lunar module to nearly spin out of control. Following the Apollo 10 mission in 1969, Boylan claimed NASA flew a secret military space shuttle to the moon in 1972 and brought the monolith back to Earth. Since then, the government had been running tests on it in a secret underwater facility in the Bahamas. However, there are many issues with Boylan's assertions. A big red flag is that Boylan said that Dr. Michael Wolf of the MJ-12 Special Studies Group on Extraterrestrials confirmed Jesse's information. MJ-12 has a long history in the UFO community dating back to the 1980s. Although there are some who believe this shadowy group exists, the FBI proved it was a hoax in 1988. Any mention of it in an extraterrestrial story probably means the whole story is a hoax. Furthermore, Boylan himself was extremely untrustworthy. 
1995, three years before Boylan made his claims about the monolith, he was stripped of his license to practice therapy. Evidently, part of Boylan's therapy for female clients who believed they were alien abductees was getting into a hot tub with them. The California State Court also found that Boylan had also offered his services in exchange for nude massages. He was deemed a danger to his clients and lost the right to practice. Considering Boylan's severe lack of credibility, his inclusion of MJ-12 in his story, and the fact that the story of the monolith is practically lifted straight out of 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's incredibly unlikely that the Apollo 10 astronauts saw anything unusual on the moon. But Boylan's fabrications didn't mean people stopped looking for evidence of an extraterrestrial presence on the moon. In 2013, a report from the website UFO Sightings Daily claimed to have a smoking gun that proved that aliens had built a lunar base. The photo in question was taken by the Apollo 11 astronauts while they orbited the far side of the moon. NASA's official records labeled it as AS-11-41-655. While combing through the online database, a researcher spotted what appeared to be a bright white structure at the edge of a crater. Unlike Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins, who could only speculate about what the bright white object he had observed near the landing site was, this researcher, known only as J.M., had the power of modern technology at their disposal. J.M. magnified the photo in question, which revealed what appeared to be, quote, some kind of unknown terrain object that appears on one of the pictures from an Apollo mission. It looks like some kind of crystal tube with something that appears like an antenna or some kind of special weapon. The structure is, in fact, visible in the photo when enlarged. However, this doesn't necessarily mean there is an alien base on the far side of the moon. On this particular photo, there are several other structures like it. The likeliest explanation is that they were the results of defects in the original negative, possibly from flecks of dust. However, while any tangible proof that there has been alien activity on the moon might be hard to come by, for researchers such as JM, hope still exists. In recent years, a government memo from 1963 has emerged that has reframed what we know about the Apollo missions. Apparently, the desire for government transparency when it came to UFOs extended beyond fringe UFO groups. According to this mysterious memo, in 1963, someone very high up in the American government was lobbying for the declassification of UFO files. This person was none other than President John F. Kennedy. And his desire to know more about UFOs might have gotten him killed.
Thanks again for tuning in to our extraterrestrial Summer of 69 special. Join us next week for part two on the Apollo programs, in which we'll examine the possibility that there was more to the Apollo missions than met the eye. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. Be sure to check it out on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Alex Benedin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. 